Hello and welcome back to the Fire Fragrance Podcast. Today we have Daniel Hoopling sharing on the key to peace. He shares with us some of his stories from the mission field. Let's jump right in. Those are amazing. I'm also growing very fond of you guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Most of you at least. No, and um, um, so uh, some years ago, I was at a Bible school in the Netherlands speaking and um, with a friend of mine and her and I were going to share... Thank you. That is amazing. Thanks. And um, we, we had classes in that morning, and I was going to do, like, the first session, then we'd take a break, and then she did, my friend, she did the, the second half. Gosh. Try to open it. Then she did the second half. And um, as she was speaking, I was sitting kind of with the students in the back, and uh, she gave us great teaching, and then at the end of her teaching... She said, all right, now we're going to do a little exercise. And she said, what we're going to do is we're going to pray. And I want all of you guys to ask God the Father a question. And then we're going to see what he wants to say. I thought, that's kind of cool. And she said, here's the question that I want you to ask God the Father. If the Father wants to play a game with you, what game it would be? And I sat at the back and I was like, no. I thought, you can't. Like, you don't play games with God. I, I, don't pl- I take God very serious. I don't play the games with God. It felt a little inappropriate to me. But I didn't want to say anything because it's my friend. I didn't want to, like, mess up her class or exercise or whatever. But I was very skeptical. And, um, and so I'm sitting in the back, and all the students were all in. And um, she said, all right, I'll pray. And then all of us, you would close our eyes, and you just ask God what game he wants to play with you. And um, so she prays, and I'm sitting there, arms crossed, and I'm like, this is, this is not right. Like, we got to take God serious. We, he doesn't, we don't play games with God. And um, so then everybody's quiet and just waiting on the Lord. And then after a while, I notice some of the students start crying. And I'm just wondering, like, maybe they didn't like the game. Maybe they lost. Like, you can never beat God, right? Like, I, I didn't know what was going on. I was so skeptical. And um, then after a while, my friend said, all right, amen. And she said, who wants to share something? And then one girl raised her hand, and I'm, I'm so interested, right, so curious. To, I was just wondering what's going on, and this girl was crying. And um, so I was really curious to know what came and how bad she lost. And uh, so she said, she tells the story, she said, well, two years ago, my sister, my only sibling, got really sick, was in the hospital, and um, it was just really bad. And she said, and every day after school, I would go to the hospital, visit my sister, and we would always play this one board game. And I know the name in Dutch. I can't remember. I don't know what the name is in English or if the game's even here. But um, beside the point, but they would always play this one board game together. She said, until this one morning, early in the morning, they got a phone call from the hospital, and her sister had died that night. And she was just heartbroken and got so angry with God. And she never played that game again. And two years later, and just always just kind of pushed it away. And two years later now, she's here in the Bible school, and she's in this class, and she's asking God, God, what game would you want to play with me? And God says, would you play that board game with me? And, and, and re- of course, really, it's the Lord is asking access to that point of pain in her life. And she opened her heart, and God met her in a profound way and brought so much healing and freedom. And I had to repent for being so religious right? And, but it, it again, it, it, it taught me, like, it's, which I've said yesterday or the day before, it's amazing what God can do with a broken heart if you give him all the pieces, if you give him access, if you just let him in. 
I was talking to one of you guys. I don't know where you are. I don't know your name either, but somebody was sharing, and both her parents have passed away. And then yesterday, to engage in a ministry time like that, to be open to the Lord and to go to that place, that is incredible, wherever you are, I told you. But, and, and, but that's how we find freedom. That's how we find healing. That's how we find breakthrough, is giving God all access. And God is good. He really is. You can't go wrong with God. It's never going to happen that you allow God and that he's going to take advantage of you or misuse you or abuse you or just humiliate and shame you. No, he brings healing. He brings hope. He brings freedom. He restores everything he does is good. And so don't be afraid of God. Don't hold back. Just dive in as scary as it is. And that's what this whole DTS is going to be about, like diving in no matter how scary it is. You just go, and you'll be challenged all the time, but just go with it. And I'm not saying just accept everything everybody says. Don't do that. Not at all. Like, you can be critical in in the right way, and and you have to discern, right? Like, even like what I'm saying, or even just as the stuff that I'm teaching you guys, don't just automatically, just because I'm saying it, assume it's all true. If you don't, like anybody who teaches anything here in Waimkona, or any of your leaders who say anything, if they say something and you cannot see it in Scripture, don't believe it. All right? Don't believe it. All right? And it's, it's your job. It's part of your job. You have to test it by Scripture. If we're saying things that are contrary to Scripture, and I sure hope we are not. I sure hope we're not. And I'm not aware of it, but it can happen, right? It can happen. Then, then don't accept it, right? So I'm not saying just accept anything. But I do want to challenge you to respond to challenges that come your way and opportunities that go your way, come your way and just throw yourself at it. And if you sincere with a sincere heart, pursue God and seek him, then you don't have to be afraid of the enemy or being deceived or whatever. You can receive what God has, all right? And um, uh, there's a, a little book in the end of the Bible called Jude. And um, in Jude, there's this one little verse that says, keep yourself in the love of God. And um, you could also say, stay focused on the love of God. And the author, he was challenging his audience. He says, stay focused on the love of God. Stay, keep your heart in that place. Keep practicing just the, the awareness of his love for you personally. And Paul in Ephesians, he writes to the Ephesians. It's a, it's a community, church community that he planted. He dearly loves these people. These are like his spiritual children. And he's praying for them in Ephesians, and he prays for them that they would comprehend the fullness of God's love, the height and depth and length and width of God's love for them, and that they would be rooted and grounded in love. And it's just so key, and it's a bit of what we talked about yesterday, right, and even the day before. That's what we want. We want our hearts anchored in the love of God. God is raising up a missionary force in this place, but we don't, want send, we don't want to send orphans out to comfort orphans. We want to see young people established in their identity, confident in God's love, that serve God for love, not to earn it, but from a place of love, with hearts on fire for Jesus, free and ready to love another people. And uh, so this week, we, I mean, it's so limited in our time, right? And the love of God, it's so rich. There's so much there to it. But I just want to encourage you, even though we're going to shift gears a little bit on, on what we're talking about this morning, 
I want to encourage you, especially in this season, but it's really all your life, but especially in this season, in a heightened way, to pursue just uh, the love of God, to grow in the knowledge of His emotions towards you, how He sees you, how He feels about you. In John, I think it's John 17, where Jesus is praying at one point, and, and He's talking to the Father, and He's praying for us. And He says this, Father, I desire... That those whom you've given me would be with me where I am and would see my glory. That's Jesus. He's expressing his heart to the Father. He's expressing his desire. And he's talking about you. You can put your name in that verse. What's your name? Carly. So if you were there just the right time, the right place, you could have heard Jesus pray. And Jesus says, Father, I desire that Carly would be with me where I am. And that she would see my glory. And I had a friend of mine one time. He was so hit by that verse. And this guy, he loves scripture. He loves prayer. And he said for a year, he couldn't get past the first three words of that Bible verse. Father, I desire. He said every, every day he would turn to the scripture. He'd go to that verse. He just couldn't get further than it. And for a year, he just meditated. He was just like in that verse. The desire, the longing of Jesus. Talking to the Father, Father, I long, I desire. There's an emotion in his heart for those whom you've given me to be near me, to be with me, to know me, to see my glory. There's emotions in the heart of God towards you. I pray that you guys would dig deep into the heart of God in this season and discover those emotions. Then one thing, I don't want to like go all self-promotion here or anything like that, but um, uh, one thing that could be helpful, could be helpful is that I wrote a book, and I wrote a book on this topic, and it, the whole book is to help people find confidence in God's love. I wrote it for primarily young adults. That's the only people I work with. I don't know how to relate to older people, really. And, uh, and so it's, the, the whole book is to help young people encounter God's love. And it's some of the stuff we talked about the last days, but then a whole bunch more. Like, what does God do when we mess up? How does he see that? How does he respond when we, when we sin? Uh, does he enjoy us in our weakness, in our brokenness? How is God good and loving when difficult stuff happens in life? And how do I grow in an awareness of God's love for me? And all that kind of stuff. And just a bunch more stories and things. And so I wrote this book. It's called Loved. And, um, and it's, it's the subtitle is When the One Who Knows You the Best Loves You the Most. And it's real easy read. And you can, it's an e-book or a hard copy book. And I don't know, most of us probably don't read books every other day. But if you'd want, I just wanted to let you know there is that resource. You can get it on Amazon or wherever. Um, it is available if you're like, hey, I like stuff we talked about yesterday. I need to go deeper in that. And there's a bunch of Bible verses in there as well that, um, like, from my own prayer list that helped me kind of pray through that and helped shape my picture of God because I had a wrong picture of God. And um, <clears throat> I realized that there was uh, that I emotionally couldn't connect with God because in my thinking I thought wrongly about God. And you can't change your emotions, you know that, but you can change your thinking. And if you change your thinking, the Bible calls it the renewal of our minds. If we put truth into our mind, our emotions will follow eventually. And so we change our thinking and put truth in there from Scripture. And so I gathered a bunch of verses that just on my journey that helped me change my thinking about God and helped me understand what he was really like. 
And then my emotions start to follow. And so I, in that book, I, those verses are there, and, um, and, and you can, you can maybe be helpful to go through those as well. And because nobody in the world knows how to spell my name, I also wrote that on there. And so my name, and then here, if you want to look for that. So I just wanted to let you guys know that, that it, it is available. And then we're going to shift gears a little bit today and talk about some other stuff. And, um, oh, and um, something we've, we've got to try. So I've, um, like our, our media department here, at, well, I'm going to ask you guys for a favor. The, our, the media department here, they, um, and my wife and my assistant, they've all been bugging me to be more active on social media, which I'm not. And, uh, and so I joined Instagram a few days ago. Yeah. Very embarrassing. I don't even know how to post yet. But <clears throat> we, I put a picture of my family on there with the help of my assistant. And, um, and so they've been telling me for days now, you've got to take pictures, you've got to do something, and I haven't done anything. And so we've got to take a picture or something. And so where's my, uh, wait, where's my uh, Instagram assistant? Where is she? We made a plan. With the, I was going to, she asked me to take a specific kind of picture with you guys. A point five. That's exactly what it. So we got to take a point five, whatever that is. Okay, let's wait until she's back, and then because I don't know how to do it. All right. Okay, so we'll do it. <laughs> we'll do it at some point. <laughs> Can I read my name? My last name. All right. So Daniel, and then here in Dutch in the Netherlands we'd say hoogtailing. <laughs> that G is like it'll clear your throat. The G in Dutch, like, was the <laughs> So, anyways, hoogtailing. I've heard many variations. Just call me Daniel. But people would typically hear say more like hooktailing or something. Yeah. One time, very embarrassing, there's this. Uh, do you guys know, and I won't mention by name, but there's this very well-known leader. His wife is a very well-respected leader, and his wife is like a saint. Like, so pure, holy, like, a, amazing, godly woman. But she always called, this is probably, uh, maybe only the Americans can track with this one, but she always calls us the Hooterlings. I know, and I, I don't have the courage to, to correct her. And she, like, she'll send a text to me, at least to me, we love the Hooterlings, we're praying for you. I'm like, thanks. Anyways, that is not our name. All right. Let's um, pray and we'll jump in. Cool? God, we thank you that we've got this time together. We're so grateful that you are here in our midst. I ask that you would speak to us. I ask that you would touch our hearts. God, you know exactly what we need. So come to us in power this morning and change our lives. Change mine. Change our lives in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, let's turn to the Bible. Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. So we're, we're in the New Testament. First book in the New Testament. The last chapter of that book, Matthew chapter 28, I'm going to read to you guys a quote from the Lord Jesus. So this is, he was on the earth just before he goes back to heaven. And um, these are actually the last recorded words of the Lord Jesus in this book before he he ascends to heaven. And um, he says these words, and these words are known now as what we call the Great Commission. And um, it's this, verse 18. So Matthew 28, we'll read verse 18, 19, and 20. 
It says, and Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. And he ends, and he says, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So this is the great commission. These are, it's pretty amazing, right? Because it's Jesus' last words before he goes to heaven. And and disciples, it's kind of an intense moment. They're like, what, you're not staying with us? He's like, no, I'm going back to heaven. So what do we do? And he's like, this is what you do. These are your marching orders. These were his instructions, his last instructions before he leaves to mankind, right? And he says this, and there's kind of three parts to it. There's this initial opening statement. Then there's a section with a few commandments. And then it ends with another statement or promise. And the first statement, and so, I, I mean, Jesus said this himself. This, again, direct quote. If you were alive 2,000 years ago, if you were there, you could have seen a literally physical man, Jewish man, stand there, and you could hear the Son of God say these very words. He said this. And the first thing he says, I have been given all authority in heaven and earth. In other words, I'm the boss, is what he says. I'm the boss. I am the king of kings. I am the Lord of all lords, right? After his death and resurrection, then he ascends to heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's been given all authority in heaven and on earth and under the earth. He is far above every power or principality or, or every person or every ruler. And, and he says, in light of that reality... Because then he says, therefore. So first he makes that statement. I'm, I'm, I'm the boss, right? Then he says, therefore, in light of that reality, who I am, what I've done, and where I am right now is completely in charge as God, right? Therefore, he says this. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and then teach them. Uh, to observe all the things I've commanded you. And then he ends with the promise of his presence. And he says, and I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And so he says, I'm the boss. Therefore, because, of who I am, because I am who I am, I want you to go and make disciples. So he says, I want you to go. What is go? Go means a change of location, right? He says, I want you to go and make disciples. So he says, go and do something. He's calling us. To action. He said, I want you to go and do something. What is the opposite of going and doing something? Yeah, staying and doing nothing. Like direct disobedience to Jesus' last words, right? Like the, I guess you said, like the anti Christian thing to do would be to stay at home passively doing nothing. Like to not care, just kind of let the world go by and not bother. That's the exact opposite of what he is asking. We do not want to be those people. We don't want to be the passive people that just stays home and does nothing. All right? We want to be the, the go and do something people. All right? We're not just here to eat out of our noses. We want to do stuff, change the world, right? So he says, I want you to go 
and make disciples, make followers of Jesus. That means that people in the world who are followers of Buddha, followers of Mohammed, followers of Apple phones, or followers of whatever, that they become followers of the Lord Jesus, disciples of the Lord Jesus. And then he says this, make disciples of all the nations. And nations here, it's, it's not countries. He's not saying of all the countries. He's saying nations, and it comes from the, the Greek word ethnos, which means ethnic groups. And so Jesus is not saying make disciples of all the countries. In those days, most of the countries that exist today didn't even have those borders and weren't even there. He's talking about every people group. And so there's a lot of countries today that have multiple people groups in their country. Like in Kenya, where we lived, there's 35 different people groups. And they have their own culture, their own language. There's a distinct group of people. They're kind of like their own little nation or whatever. Their own people. And so in the world, even though there's about 200 countries, there are thousands of people groups. There's countries that have many, like even hundreds of people groups. And so he's, he's, there, it's quite extensive. He's not just saying go to every country and make disciples. He's saying, I want you to reach every people group, every ethnic group, every culture, every language on the earth. And, um, and that's a lot. And then he says, and then I want you to baptize them. Like bring them to this point of public identification with the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And then to teach them, not just converts, but teach them. To walk in my ways, to, to, oh, to observe all the things that I've commanded you. And then, so those, that's the section with the commandments. And then he ends with this promise of his presence. And he said, and I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, the commandments section is quite radical, right? Because it's just what we said. He, he's, he makes no exceptions. He wants us to go into all the world, to every people group. And there are places and Countries and people groups that are, that are super fun to go to <laughs> and that are very welcoming of missionaries. And then there's people groups, not so much, that are very hostile to maybe Christianity or, or um, that are not welcoming of the gospel or that are geographically very remote to reach. The, the remaining unreached people groups in the world are simply unreached for the most part because they're just very hard to reach. <laughs> the easy ones have already been reached. And so there's a task ahead of us that's not necessarily easy. The easy ones were already taken. And so, but we're here. We weren't alive when the easy ones were still available. We're alive in this hour, and we were made, and you are called for some of the hard stuff, for some of the challenging stuff, all right? That's the time God made you for. That's the, guy, the time that God inserted you into the story. And so there's people groups that are very hostile to the gospel. There's people groups remaining in regions that are very remote and hard to access, but yet we have to go. He makes no exceptions. He tells us to go anyways. And you say, man, that's dangerous. Yes, and God knows. And so the command to go is so radical when you think about it that way, but then so is the promise that follows. He says, and I will be with you always. He gives us the promise of his presence. And you know, in, there's a story in, um, in uh, Exodus, when God's people, it's in the Old Testament, when all the Israelites, all God's people, they were in Egypt, 
and they were um, held against their will and, and, and turned into slaves, right, to work for the Egyptian pharaoh. And the, the, the Israelites were abused, and then God raised up Moses, a deliverer of his people. And um, Moses, he, he had this incident happen where he sees this um, Egyptian abuse one of the Israelites, and he kills the guy just in a moment of like, hey, you're back. We got to. I told everybody we got to take the, uh, the 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 half picture. Yeah, but I need I need your help. So should we do it now? All right, let's do this. <laughs> I'm always joking with my kids because they don't. Anyways, doesn't matter. <laughs> Good. So Moses, let's get back to Moses. Moses, he beats up this Egyptian guy, kills him, right? Then he's like, oh my gosh, this may not turn out well for me. And he runs away. He flees into the wilderness. Spends 40 years in the wilderness just hanging out with the sheep, right? Or camels, whatever animals he was hanging out with. And uh, he's there, and then he sees this burning bush. It's on fire, but it's not being consumed. And then it draws his attention, and then God speaks to him through it. And says, Moses, I want to send you back to Egypt to confront the Pharaoh and to tell him, let my people go so that they can worship me. And Moses is like, "Uh, excuse me, I don't think you've got the right guy. This was pretty intimidating because here's why. Egypt was the superpower on the earth in that time. And and the, the ruler, the Pharaoh, was the most powerful man on the earth. Absolute sovereign ruler. He could do whatever he wanted. And he was surrounded by some of the most demonized people in the, in the world. And now Moses is sent to confront the Pharaoh. And he left on bad terms. He had to run for his life. And now God sends him to confront the most powerful man in the world. And so Moses, I mean, that's so intimidating, right? And so Moses, understandably, he's like, God, I don't think I'm your guy. I don't think I can do this. I'm not very articulate. Like, how do I do that? And I think maybe Moses would have wanted to have heard God say, Oh, but Moses, look at you. You're amazing. You're strong. You're good. You're so gifted. I'm so impressed with you. You're the guy. You are the man of the hour. Rah, rah, rah. You got this. Go, 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 go. That's not what God says to Moses. He simply says this to Moses. Moses, I'm going to go with you. Shut up and go, right? Because Moses was not to put his confidence in his ability, but in the presence of God. In the presence of God. And so he goes. And God goes with him. And it works. Right? It works. And then years later, you've got now the Israelites. They're in front of the Jordan River. They're about to go into the promised land. After a long journey through the wilderness. And Moses just died. And now it's Joshua. He's the new leader. And he is to take God's people across the river into the promised land. But there are many enemies there. Intimidating enemies. Powerful cities. And powerful warriors. And God says this to Joshua, Joshua, I want you to go in there, conquer all the enemies. And then he says this, Joshua, be strong and courageous. Why? For the Lord, your God, is with you. He says the same thing to Joshua. I'm going to go with you. And then he speaks to us, and he speaks to you today in the Great Commission. And he tells us to go into all the world. To make disciples of all and reach all the people groups on the earth. And then he gives us the same promise. 
the promise of his presence. He says, and I myself, I will go with you. And guys, the, pro- the promise is, is personal. He doesn't say, I will be with YWAM. I will be with your ministry or your outreach team. He says, I will be with you. It's God's personal promise to you. And so we don't fear the world, right? We fear God. We don't fear the world. We have someone living on the inside of us who's greater than all of it. And it doesn't matter how dark or oppressed oppressed a place is. You have somebody living on the inside of you who is greater than all of that. God himself is with you. And so we are, you guys are a generation of people that have an incredible challenge ahead of you, but so is this incredible promise. God's promise is to you. I will be with you. And then he emphasizes even to the very end, like the last people group, the hardest place. He said, I'm going to be right there with you. And that's where we put our confidence in. It's in the presence of God. You're like, oh, but I'm not very gifted. I'm not very articulate. I don't think I would make a great missionary. I don't know if I can do it. And God basically says, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to go with you. Put your confidence in his presence. And he will use the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And he will use us. In, um, um, in the Gospels, when Jesus calls his disciples, he calls Peter at one point. Peter is a fisherman. And he says to Peter, Peter, come be my sub. Come follow me. And I will make of you a fisher of men. And that's always how it works. He calls us. And then he immediately expressed his commitment. He said, come follow me. Like, you know, leave everything behind. Come follow me. And I will make of you a fisher of men. And he calls you. He said, come follow me. Abandon all. Obey what I have called you to. And I don't know exactly what the assignments of God are on your life. But he will make it clear along the journey, right? But he says, come follow me. And I will make of you. See, Peter, he, Jesus didn't look for those who were qualified. He looked for those who were willing because he qualifies the willing. And so all he's looking for, even among you guys, he's not looking for the most gifted or smartest person or whatever. He's looking for a willing heart. Somebody that's just abandoned to the Lord says, God, I love you. And I want to give myself to the dreams of your heart. Use me. And he says, I'll take you and I will make of you something promise of his presence he will go with us i was in uh, some few years ago i was in a in a little country in africa in the horn of africa region called djibouti and a small country it's about a million people that live there and um, both the country as well as the capital city are called djibouti and so i was in djibouti djibouti and i love saying that and uh, so i was there and uh, it's it's a very close muslim country Though, really, there's a leader once told me, he said, now there's no such thing as a close nation if you're willing not to come back. (laughs) And so maybe we should not say it's a close nation. It was a creative access country. Let's call it that way. A country that requires a little creativity to get in, and you don't know if you get out. And so this is that kind of a country. 
And the people that live in Djibouti, it borders the country of Somalia, and it's the Somali people. They're one of the most resistant groups of people towards the gospel. And a Samian friend, we went there, and we knew of a missionary who worked there, and we met with this guy. And he, he was a, because uh, you can't just openly be a missionary there. So he was a librarian. There's one main library there in the city, in the capital city. And um, he was the, the, like the, the librarian. He manages that library. And that was kind of like his cover in his way that he could be there. And um, so <clears throat> we're there, me and my friend, we're meeting with him. And he told us this amazing story. And he said, I got to tell you about this guy from Yemen. And uh, I said, we were like, tell us. We want to hear it. And um, he said, there was a guy in Yemen. And Yemen's another country in the Middle East. It, it's on the Arabian Peninsula. It's right under Saudi Arabia, Arab nation, very creative access country, very difficult country, very messed up. through war, poverty, Muslim extremism, all the stuff. So there's a guy in Yemen, a Muslim, an Arab, and he got sick. Quite sick. He needed real treatment, but in his country, he could not be treated. And so then he does some research online to find out where he can be helped, and he finds out there's a hospital in Djibouti, Djibouti, where they can treat whatever sickness he had. And so he makes an appointment there, books a ticket, and from Yemen, he flies to Djibouti, Djibouti. And he gets there, and he gets the hotel and everything. He checks into the hospital, and um, he's assigned the doctor that he was to meet. And the doctor turned out to be this young American guy who was a Christian. And this doctor, he was, it was, still, he was there just temporarily like on like some kind of exchange program or like an externship program. It was still part of his studies. And so he was there in that hospital. And um, he was the doctor assigned to this man from Yemen. And so the guy, they've got an appointment. And then over the course of a week, they meet several times. And I think it was the third or fourth time. The, the guy from Yemen, the patient, he says to the doctor, doctor, can I ask you a personal question? And the doctor said, sure. And uh, then he said, what is the question? And the, 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 the patient, the man from Yemen, he said, there is a peace that you have that I don't know. How do I get that? And the guy, the, 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 the American doctor, he's a Christian, and he's like, I know the answer, but he was actually afraid to talk about Jesus. And because uh, he, I mean, he wasn't there as a missionary, and he was actually really scared and nervous about being in that country. And he was like, man, if I tell him about Jesus, maybe somebody's going to kill me or whatever. And he's, so his mind's like racing. He's like, I, he doesn't want to just not say anything, but he doesn't want to die either. And so his mind's like racing, like, what can I say? And then he says this. He said, the secret to peace is with the Christians. And, and then, so the, and the guy from here was like, okay, great. I'll fight me, Christian, and, and get the key, the key to peace. Oh, no, the doctor said, he said, the key to peace is with the Christians. And he's like, okay, great. I'll find a Christian and, and ask him for the key to peace. And the doctor's like, great, <laughs> do that. And um, so finishes treatment, and he goes back to Yemen, right? And um, he starts looking around this city and asking around, looking for a Christian who can give him the key to peace. And he can't find a Christian. And a day goes by, a week goes by, month goes by, two, three, four, five, six months, and he cannot find a Christian. And a year goes by, and he cannot find one single believer who can give him the key to peace. And after a year, he's so desperate. He doesn't sleep well. He knows there is more, but he doesn't know where to go or who to turn to. And so after a year, he's so desperate. He's like, I'm, not gonna, I'm never going to find anybody here in Yemen. 
And then he decides, I'm going to go back to Djibouti, Djibouti, to the hospital. He said, I'm going to go look for the doctor again. Because he said, the doctor was his only lead. He said, maybe the doctor can tell me who a Christian, like, and point me to a Christian. So he, for the second time, he books his ticket, gets on the plane, flies to Djibouti, Djibouti. And uh, he gets out there, goes to the hospital, and he's like, my name is this, blah, blah, blah. He said, I want to meet the doctor, this doctor. And the people at the, the hospital, they're like, oh, we're so sorry. This doctor is no longer here. The doctor had gone back to America. And he was so sad. He was so sad and so discouraged. And so he's like, okay. And so he walks out of the hospital. And as he walks down the steps out of the hospital, he's thinking, well, where can I go? What can I do? And an idea pops into his mind that I think maybe God might have put there. And he thinks, I'm going to go to the library to see if there is a book on the key to peace, the key of the Christians. And so he goes to the library, and he walks in, and he meets the librarian. Who's the missionary? And he tells, he asks, he's a question. He said, do you have a book on the key to peace, the key of the Christians? And, and the missionary, he was wise, and he had to be careful, right, because he had to discern, is this like a genuine inquiry, or is this maybe somebody sent by the government to test if I'm a missionary or something? You had to be so careful there. And um, so he, he's, he's trying to be wise, and the, uh, the, the missionary, he plays it really cool. He's like, oh, need a book on key of peace to the Christian or whatever. He's like, yeah, maybe. He said, I'll, uh, I'll look around. Why don't you come back tomorrow? I'll see if maybe I've got something for you. He's just trying to play real cool. And then the guy from Yemen leans across his desk and whispers in the missionary's ear. He said, please, I'm begging you. I am desperate. I don't sleep well at night. If you can help me, please help me. And the missionary looks in his eyes and he realizes, this guy's for real. And he said, actually, come to the back with me. And he takes him to his office. And then he gives him our key. He tells him about the Lord Jesus. And the man from Yemen begins to weep and he falls to his knees and he says, this is what I've longed for all my life. And he said, I need Jesus. I need forgiveness of my sins. And he is saved right there in the office. And yeah, his whole appearance changes. And he's shiny. He's being so happy, like genuinely born again, encounter with God. And he goes back to his hotel room, comes back the next day, so happy. And he tells the missionary, last night was the first night in my life that I slept in peace. First night in all my life. And then he said, I cannot wait to get back home immediately. Because he said, I have so many friends. So many family members were all searching. We all know Islam is a letdown. None of us are satisfied. We all know it doesn't work. He said, but we, there's no alternative. We don't know where to go or what to do. He said, I can't wait to go back. We're all searching. We're all desperate. We're all empty. And we found, I found an answer. And the missionary was wise. He said, no, wait. Stay here for a month. I've got much to teach you. Because he's thinking, I've got to make a disciple. And so every day, this man came to the library. And they would sit in the back office. And they'd go through the Bible and talk about God and his kingdom and all of it for a whole month. And then he goes back to Yemen. And he's so excited, right? Because he's got the answer. I mean, his life is 100% different. And he goes, and he cannot shut up. He tells everybody and their mother about Jesus, Right? And so he's witnessing to everybody. And people are getting saved. Others not. Some get actually really angry until one person actually tries to kill him. And he needs to run away. 
And, uh, but he keeps going. And then they get real serious about trying to kill him in the city. And he needs to flee to another city. And he's there, he starts sharing about Jesus. And people start getting saved until somebody tries to kill him. He goes to the next city. And then the next city. And the next city. And he literally moves around whenever they try to kill him. And he travels all around the country. And after a while, there was no place safe for him in the country. And he left trails of believers everywhere he went. All over Yemen. Yeah. Amazing. And then... And then he's like, gosh, what do I do? Like, I'm going to die if I stay in this country. Where do I go? And he thinks, I'm going to go to Djibouti, Djibouti. For the third time, he books a ticket. And now as a refugee, he goes to Djibouti, Djibouti. And that's where he settled. And then in Djibouti, of course, still full of the Lord, he starts talking to all the Somali people about the Lord Jesus. And he sees Somalis get saved who are some of the hardest people to reach in the world. And the Somalis literally told him this. They said, When you talk about Jesus, we feel like stoning you. But you're an Arab. You brought us Islam. If you're telling us you're wrong, we have to listen. Is that amazing? And so he became this really effective missionary in Yemen. Now, I mean, in in Djibouti. I love that story. At the same time, it's kind of disturbing because it makes me realize there are many people in a country called Yemen who are desperately searching But there is no one to turn to. There's no one to give them answers. And that is not right. We've got to fix that. You guys, your generation, guys, we have to fix that. We got to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. And we can do that in our generation, in our lifetime. And yes, there are real challenges ahead. But you guys were born for such a time as this. You guys are the answer. What kind of missionary is it going to take to finish the task? It's people like you. Ordinary people like you that will put all their confidence in the presence of God. People who've encountered his love, whose hearts are on fire. Like, God, I'll go anywhere for you. I'll give myself to the dreams of your heart. And he will anoint you. He will give you great courage. And you guys will go. You guys are like, I'm thinking of this missionary. There's this, in the 1800s, there was this missionary, and I just lost his name now. Um, gosh, okay, it'll come to me. But there's this missionary and, um, in the 1800s, and him and his friends, they were praying and, uh, for the Fiji Islands because there were unreached people on the Fiji Islands. And Fiji is beautiful. I've never been. I've seen pictures, videos. It's amazing. I generally feel called to every beautiful island in the world. And I would love to go to Fiji at one point. In those days, though, some of the people that lived in Fiji and some of the islands were cannibals. That just changes the whole setting, right? So hard to enjoy the beach from a cooking pot. And so the, the, it, it was dangerous. And, so, and they knew, right? So, but they're, and they're like, but, but somebody has to reach them. And so this guy and his friends, he, they decided to pray. And they're like, Lord, would you send laborers to Fiji? They're so burdened for these unreached people in Fiji. And they keep praying, praying until one day they're praying. And one of the guys is like, guys, what are we doing? And they're like, eh, what? We're praying for laborers? Like, this is right. And they're like, well, why are we asking the Lord to send others? Maybe we should be the answer to our prayers, right? I mean, it's so much easier to send others than to tell others what to do than to do it yourself. And they're like, maybe we should do it. All of a sudden, they feel so convicted. And like, gosh, what are we doing asking God to send others? We should be willing to go. And they say, Lord, send us. We'll go. 
And so these guys, a little group of friends, I think there's like five of them. And one guy's kind of like their, their leader. They decide to go and they find a captain with a boat who's willing to take them and drop them off at these islands where they know the cannibals are. And so the day comes and um, they, 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 they're there at the wharf and they get on the boat. And then the captain, he takes the, 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 the main guy who leads the, the little team. He takes them aside and he says, hey, let me just talk to you for one moment. And they get back on shore and they're talking. And the captain is trying to, like, it's like this last ditch effort trying to reason him out of going. And he says this to him. He said, why are you going? You and your friends, you will all die at the hands of those savages, is what he says. And the missionary looks the captain in the eye and he says this to him. He said, we died before we came here. He said, Christ is our life. I have nothing to lose. And they go and they reach that. I mean, that's the kind of missionaries that we need, right? That are just so in love with Jesus. So willing to give it all. And guys, we, we're not like some kind of suicide camp here. That's, it's not our plan to all go and die in the nations, right? Like, I know sometimes we sound so intense. And, and, and people come here and think, gosh, you guys all have a death witch and just want to die in Fiji and Somalia and whatever. Not really. We love our life, honestly. We're not wanting to die. But, but we do want to obey this great commission. We want to see the task finished because we do realize that tonight when you go to bed, like this night, when you put your head on your pillow, just think of this for a second, that this very day, 66,000 people will have died, never ever even having heard the name of Jesus. You see, good news is only good news if it gets there in time. And there's people all over the world that are desperately waiting and God, in his wisdom, for some reason, I don't fully understand it all, but he decided to limit himself to our willingness to go. And the problem is not with God not calling. It's with people not responding. And so he calls, and he's asking all the time, who is willing to go? Who will give themselves? And this great commission, this is what we looked at. This is not just for some, like, so, so-called radical missionaries or whatever. This is for the church. For all of us, we all together own the Great Commission. We all, all of you, each, it's not optional, right? It's not optional. This is not a, 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 a like the, the Great Commission, is, is, it's not a, an option to consider. It's just a command to obey. It's just a command to obey. And all of us need to own it. All of us need to find our place in it. And it will look different for everybody, right? It'll look different for everybody. But all of us, we have to wrestle that verse to the ground. It's like, gosh, God says this. You can no longer be ignorant. I've told you the verse. We've looked at it. You've heard it. You can't say you never heard it. It's in the Bible. You've got to deal with it. And you choose to ignore it. John Piper says this. He said, either you go or you send or you disobey. But you've got to do something. You've got to find something. You've got to wrestle this to the ground and ask the Lord, God, what are you asking of me? And for some of you, you're going to move to other nations. For some of you, it's simply going to the neighbor and sharing the gospel. Whatever, and all of that is great, right? You just got to obey the Lord. And it'll look different in many, many ways. God can use you in many different ways. I was just talking to a couple this morning. They, they're in Tanzania. And they were in our staff meeting yesterday as well. And they're starting a sports academy in Tanzania. They're raising $4 million. And they're doing discipleship with young men. And women, they've got women teams as well. And they just had, last year they had a soccer team from Somalia 
come to their city to play in the tournament. And all of a sudden, they've got access to some alleys right there. And they're discipling men. And that's what missions can look like. This is one latest story I heard about. She um, was an American. She did her DTS in, uh, I believe, in Australia. And she was a scientist. And she worked in a laboratory with mice. And she would train mice and um, did all kinds of testing with mice. And she, she was kind of socially awkward, not really a people person, more of a, a mice kind of person, a laboratory person, scientist. And, and uh, she, she felt the Lord telling her to do a DTS. And she's like, God, I don't know why and whatever. So, but she obeys. She goes, does her DTS in Australia. She goes on out and, and the lecture phase, and it was good and all, all that. And she actually really encountered the Lord. And then she goes on her outreach to um, Rwanda. And Rhonda had just come out of a war, and she's so nervous about this. And she told her leaders, like, I'm not an evangelist. I'm not, I don't have people skills. I'm not articulate. Like, I don't think I can do this thing. And they're like, no, God will use you, and he will use whatever you have. And she's like, okay, I'll go. So she goes on an outreach to Rwanda. And while she's there, she learns that there's lots of mines in the, in, in, uh, in the country, like, left over from the war. And she would see people with limbs missing and and it's many times accidents would happen where where kids or people would walk to a minefield and a mine would explode and then if they wouldn't lose their life they would lose a limb or whatever and um, it was already a poor country but because of the mines a huge sections of their land that was used for agriculture could no longer be used because it was too dangerous because of the mines and they had no way of clearing the mines and so it was only creating more and more poverty in the nation and then so she's there, she's burdened, she's praying for the nation. They're there with their outreach team. She's like, Lord, help us. Like, we want to make a difference in this country. She's praying, blah, blah. And the Lord gives her an idea. And this is a true story. This is what she does after her DTS. She goes back to Rwanda, and she started training white mice, little mice, to smell, to sniff out mines. And so literally, they would have little mice that she trained on like a leash. And the mice... Would, they would send them into these fields, and if they would smell a mine, they would stand on their back feet. Uh, it's the cutest thing, right? And then they would teach these mice to detonate the mines, and they would blow themselves up. No, just kidding. They would. <laughs> that'd be awesome. <laughs> no, but the mice, they wouldn't do that. The mice would just stand like this, and then they, they found a way to then detonate them. And they used those mice and that method to clear most of the nation of all the mines. And then the United Nations adopted her methods and they've used it in other countries. That's a lady who said, I can't be a missionary. And she's changing that nation. I guess missions can look many different ways. It can look many different. Another cool story, there was a guy in, um, in Uganda. He went to the DTS and everything, and uh, then he was visiting England. He did some school for, for farming and sustainability in, in England, and he noticed the goats in England were so much bigger and fat and had lots of milk. And the, the goats in Uganda were skinny, very little meat, and produced very little milk. And so he thought, that's not good. I want these English goats. And he brings a goat from England, but it dies real quickly because of the tropical diseases. And he's bummed, but he's, he's praying. Because now he's back. He's been trained as a missionary. If he's thinking sustainability, development. He's like, I want to do something with these goats. He's praying. And then he develops this plan. And he goes to, back to England. And he buys this massive, big male goat. Huge one. And he calls him Abraham. Because he wanted that goat to become the father of a great multitude. 
Uh, so he comes, brings the goat back to Uganda, and he sets up a dating service for his goat. And yeah, yeah, I, it's, and uh, that goat created many, many offsprings, many children. And he started breeding this breeding program together with the University in Kampala in Uganda and um, several generations down. And now what they were able to create were goats that were big and had meat and milk like the English ones, but then had the resistance of the Ugandan goats towards tropical diseases because they would mate with Ugandan goats. And um, so then it goes down 12 generations of breeding and then you can declare new species. So he did that, this breeding program, and then he went to register his new species of goat. And um, he goes there, he fills out the form, and at the end of the form, there was a, name, a question that he wasn't prepared to answer. And they asked him, like, so what's the name of your new species of goat? And he said, I don't know, I, we don't have a name, we always call it the YWAM goats. And I was like, okay, YWAM, he writes YWAM. Now you can go to Uganda and to certain markets, and you can buy YWAMers. It's true. No human trafficking involved. <laughs> They're goats. And that guy is changing his nation. Guys, missions can look many different ways, right? We train people in farming. We train people with dance, and sports, uh, all kinds of stuff. And so where your passions, your hobbies, like where it lies, God can use it for you to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. All right? Let's, um, let's take a break. Is that good? Good. Okay. Oh, wait. I think Eli just got an announcement. Thank you, Emma. Um, I'll give you guys one passage, a few stories, and then we're going to pray. Cool? And then we'll have lunch. So in, um, in Matthew chapter 8, there's this story about this leper. And so in, in Jesus' time, when somebody was diagnosed with leprosy, that was considered a contagious, incurable disease. And what they would do, they would cast you out of the community. You'd have to live outside the city alone or with other sick people, other lepers, and uh, so that you couldn't infect other people. And then the other rule was that whenever you had to go to, like, say, the market to get some shoppings or into the city or whatever, they had to shout out loud, leprosy, leprosy, or, like, ring a bell so that everybody knew, leper, stay away, stay away, right? And so in Matthew 8, there's this guy, he's a leper. And he's desperate, right, because the guy's never going to get healed. He's never going to have a normal life. There's no chance he's going to get a wife or, or, or family or any of that stuff. He, he, there's, it's a really hopeless situation. Never going to get cured. Until he starts to hear about Jesus. And he hears that Jesus heals every disease. And hope springs up. And so, obviously, what does he do? What any of us would do. You would go look for Jesus. And in Matthew 8, we read that moment that he finds Jesus. And what he does when he sees Jesus, he just falls before Jesus on the ground. And he says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me whole. And it's interesting because his question wasn't whether Jesus could heal him. He knew Jesus could heal all diseases. His question was whether Jesus would heal him. He's like, I know you can heal all diseases. And I know you've healed many, but would you heal me? Have I found favor in your eyes? Is your heart turned towards me? Will you heal me? Are you willing to heal me? Will you do it for me, what you've done for so many others? And then it says that Jesus puts his hand on him, and he says this. It's so awesome. He says, I am willing. And then he says, be healed. Be clean. And immediately the guy was healed. 
And he's healed because of what Jesus says, right? Because God says, let there be light. Psh, light comes on. And so he says, be clean, be healed to the guy. And boom, all leprosy is gone. But, and I love that God healed the guy. But one day I was reading that, and actually what touched me was not so much the healing, as cool as that was, but actually what Jesus did before he healed him said that he laid his hand on him. And I realized Jesus touches those people nobody else wants to touch. I mean, there was nobody that gave that guy a hug that morning or a pat on the shoulder and said, hey, you're awesome, you look great, because he didn't, he looked terrible, right? He's dying of leprosy. But Jesus laid his hand on him. And he was healed because of the word he spoke, but Jesus wanted to touch him. And I realized that's Jesus. He comes close to those people and he touches the sick. And <clears throat> Jesus is like that. He touches those nobody wants to touch. He loves those nobody loves. He honors those the world despises. He comes close to those the world rejects. He will sit with the lowly. He will love the forgotten. He will honor the despised. That is the heart of God. And um, shortly be after that, around that time, I was in Kenya. It was my first time ever in Kenya. And I was in this area in northwest Kenya, a real poor area. And uh, we were visiting these children's homes. And this children's home, there were about 60 kids. And there was one family that was taking care of these kids. And it was just a family that cared about adoption and just took on kids. And it just got a little out of hand. And they ended up with 60 children. Pretty crazy. And um, she had a few women that helped her cook. But that was it. And so we're there, and the lady's like, yeah, it's tough. It's a big family, 60 kids. And she said, but we, what do we do? We can't turn these kids away. We can't let them just lie on the streets and die. So we bring them in, one after the other. But she said, but it's hard because she said, I realize these kids, they need love. They need personal attention and touch. And she said, the more love and attention I give to these kids, the better they do. And the less attention, then they don't do so well. And uh, we were talking about all kinds of stuff, and then I, I took a little walk around the property, and just walking, and it's this real kind of deserty area, and just kind of there in the dirt, and I, all of a sudden I see this little kid, maybe two-year-old, this little boy, um, <clears throat> barely any clothes, just torn up clothes, no shoes, and he's just standing there, and he's looking, staring at me, and I get a little closer, and there's just such a brokenness, such a sadness in his eyes. And there were flies on his face, on, on the corners of his mouth and his eyes. And I just, you could just see the brokenness in his eyes. It was so sad. And he got a little closer, and he seemed like a little just scared. He just stood there, like silent, just with big eyes just staring at me. And um, slowly but slowly, I got a little closer. And then I just knelt in front of him, and I tried to say some ni nice things until I thought, this is stupid. He doesn't speak my language. <laughs> and um, then I, thought, I, I just wanted to pray for him. And I wanted God to touch this boy, so I, very carefully, I like reached out my hand, and then I put my hand on his shoulder, and he let me. And then I said, God, touch this boy. Like, heal his heart. And then all of a sudden, I could feel like this, this warmth coming from my chest, and I could just feel it flow through my arm. Never had that before or after. It just warmed, and it just went right through my and I could see the presence of the Lord come upon this child. And then God started touching him, and his appearance changed, and he comes, and I hold him, and I'm just standing, sitting there in the dirt with this child, and God's touching this kid, and all of a sudden, in my mind, I can imagine Jesus 
when he was walking on the earth and said in Acts that he went around doing good and healing people. And like, imagine Jesus bringing healing, casting out demons, multiplying food, feeding the hungry, caring for widows, and saying, let children come to me. And he blessed children. And all of a sudden, these Bible verses that I'd kind of heard along the way, now they came back to me with life on them. And I realized, gosh, it says in the Bible, he's the defender of widows, that he's the father of the fatherless, that he's the God who puts the lonely in a family. That he's the one who feeds the hungry, satisfies the thirsty. And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh my gosh, God really, really cares about the poor, about orphans, about widows, about the broken. It says in the Psalms that he's close to the brokenhearted, that he cares about refugees. I was like, gosh, God, you're such a compassionate God. You're such a loving and good father. And I thought, I want to be like you. I want to love well. I want to be like Jesus and touch the leper. I want to be like Jesus and let's say, let the children come to me and bless them. I want to be used by God. And then shortly after, I had a friend of mine. He was visiting. I was still in the Netherlands, living in the Netherlands at that time. And he had this newspaper article that he gave to me. And he was from Canada. He was visiting and felt to give it to me. And it was, it was this newspaper article. I still have it. I, it's in my room. I didn't even bring it. But it's laminated, and it's a, a story of a situation that happened in Mexico. True story. And um, on the newspaper article, above it says, two-year torment for four-year-old girl. And then there's a picture there of a little girl that sits in a cage, like a, a, a made of sticks. And the story is this. Here's this girl that was born in Mexico, and she lives there. And when she was two years old... Her dad, and this is literally what uh, the explanation, because he thought she was a nuisance, he's just annoyed with her, bothered by her, he built a cage of sticks and locked his daughter up in the cage and kept her in there for two years. And they had, they had pigs, they had a shed with a few pigs, and so he had taken the cage and put it in the shed with the pigs and put his daughter in there. But the cage was small, I mean, you'd see it on the photo, like she's just sitting in it like this. And so for two years, this girl, this two-year-old girl, so from two to four, was locked up in this cage, her own, never let out. Her only company were the pigs. And when she was, it was finally discovered, and it, of course then it made the news, when it was finally discovered and she was taken out, they found her sitting in her own waist in clothes that were too small. She could not stand up or walk. She couldn't speak anymore, completely traumatized. And it's so horrific, right? And over the years in the different countries and places where I've lived, I've always kept that news article in my office as a reminder of just some of the suffering and the reality of what's going on in the world, right? And then I look at it at times and I think, gosh, what was it like for that girl? I mean, how do you process that as a two-year-old? When your own father takes you and shoves you into a cage and puts you in there in the shed with the pigs, and you're like, what's going on? You can't get out. And then you have to stay there the whole night. And then day after day after day until you're hopeless. Like, you don't, that doesn't make sense. And her only company are the pigs. She never sees other people for two years. Until she, can, she never gets up. She can only sit in there. Can no longer walk. Can, couldn't stand up. Couldn't talk anymore. And then I think about God who created her. 
right? So this is Psalm 139. He knit us together in our mother's womb. God created this girl. And he had a plan for her life, right? A dream. God loves that girl. Jesus died for that girl. She was always meant to be part of the bride of Christ. God, God wants to spend eternity with this girl, right? And then God was there when she was born. And he saw her first steps, her first smile, the first words she spoke. This little two-year-old, and he saw it when she was locked up in the cage. And he, our God, who holds the whole world in his hands, who hears and sees everything, he heard her. All the nights that she cried herself to sleep. All the confusion, thinking, trying to make sense of it. And every time the door of the shed would open, and they're like, is this going to end? And somebody, her dad would throw her some food and leave again. The hopelessness, the loneliness. She would just sit there staring at the pigs. And I think the pain in the heart of God. And then I wonder, what would it be like? What would it be like if, if God would use me? Or what would it be like if he would use you to rescue a girl like that? I mean, imagine if you were the one that could open that cage and take this little girl in your arms. What if you somehow could communicate to her, you have a father in heaven who loves you. This is all over. You're free. What if you could help her to walk and she would start walking again? What if you could help her to talk? What if God would use you to share the gospel with her? And you could help her encounter God and find healing. What if you could be the one to see her in love with Jesus, just this little worshiping God, free and dancing and making friends and laughing again, eating normal food? How amazing would that be? Guys, God wants to use you to rescue girls like that. You've heard of human trafficking. There's so many people that live in captivity. There are girls like that. There are little boys that live in captivity. Seven, eight years old that sleep with gross old men. 20 to 40 times a day. Used as sex slaves. There's all kinds of injustice in the world. And God wants to use us as the church to love the very least of these. The people that are abused that are looked down upon, that are taken advantage of. God is a God of justice. He is a God of love. We talked about that. But God is also a God of hate. He hates injustice. He hates injustice. And he wants to use people like you and me, just ordinary people, to bring freedom and healing and hope to a broken world. Guys, there's a lot of crap going on in this world. So much pain, so much brokenness, and you have answers. There is a hope, and you can bring it. And the Lord wants to use many of you guys to go to the very ends of the earth and be a light in a dark place. Jesus stepped into the darkness and he said, let there be light. Let's do the same thing. Let's step into the dark places of the world and say, let there be light and bring the hope of the Lord Jesus. Let's feed the hungry. 
satisfy the thirsty. Let's bring the lonely into family. Let's care for orphans and widows, the poor, for the refugees, for those in captivity. And let's bring justice to the ends of the earth. It's one of the major things that YM cares about and that we do is mercy. We want to bring justice, God's justice, to the ends of the earth. When um, in, in, uh, in James, actually, in James chapter 1, verse 27, it says this. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. Like if you just pause it there. Religion, like, or do you say, the expression of Christianity that God the Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. What would that be? God says it straight up, right there in the Bible. This is what I want Christianity to look like. This is the religion that's acceptable to me. And then he says it. And what do you think it would be? Reading your Bible every day, going to your DTS or whatever? It's not what it says. It says this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress. And to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And we don't preach about it that much in our churches. But it's right there in the Bible. God says the expression of Christianity that is acceptable to me is one that looks after orphans and widows in their distress. In other words, if you don't, you're offering something to me that's not acceptable. And I'll say it this way. If you, or if we, I'll include myself, if we close our ears to the cries of help of the poor in the world around us, God will close his ears to the songs that you sing in this place. Because you are offering him an expression of Christianity that's not acceptable to him. The problem is that so many of us, and again, I include myself. I need to repent of this all the time. We are so, we tend to be, I'll just keep it to myself. I tend to be so selfish, so materialistic, so focused on maybe what I don't have and what I want and my stuff and my comfort and all and me. And so often I tend to default in making myself kind of the center of my universe. But I'm, I'm not. It's, the world's not about me. All right? God created the world for himself. You are not the center of the world. God is. All of this was created for him. You exist for him. God doesn't exist for you. You were made for him. It's all about him and his glory. And that doesn't make you insignificant. You're here. He wanted you here. He created you because he wanted you. And so there's huge significance to your life. But you've got to understand, it's all about God. Everything is centers around him. And it's all for him. And, 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 and I hope that we would be freed from our self-centeredness. Because there's so much freedom in making it all about Jesus. So Jesus, if you lose your life for my sake, then actually you find it. So those who seek to save their life, they will lose it. You need to be caught up in a story that's bigger than just your comfort. There's a bigger picture going on. And you want to throw yourself at that. You know, there's this um, story of the prodigal son. Did Andy talk to you guys a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. So this guy, what does he do? He, he uses basically the blessings of his father to finance his way into sin. And, you know, we 
most of us here, we come from the Western world. Many, like lots of Americans, obviously, a whole bunch of Western Europeans here. And um, guys, we, uh, whether you're aware of it or not, to, for the most part, we are the rich of the world. I mean, we can ignore it, but that's true, right? I remember so often for me as a student, I would say, oh, I'm just a poor student until the Lord confronted me because I'm not. Obviously, there's always people richer than us. And, and many people here wouldn't look at me as being this really rich person. But if you've got an education, a house, a car or a phone, clothes, enough food to eat, I mean, then you become, you're, you, you move up to the top of the richest people in the world. There's, most people in the world do not have what you have. We are the rich. And, and I'm not saying that to make you feel bad. Being rich is not bad. Being given much is not bad. It just means more responsibility. And I hope that we are responsible with what we've been given. Because it was not just given for you to be comfortable. Again, the prodigal son, he used the blessings of his father to finance his way into sin. What are you doing with all the blessings God has given you? I hope we are responsible with what we've been given. And we don't ignore the cries of the needy and the poor in the world around us. We need them, actually. God said in the Bible, blessed are the poor, not those who work with the poor. And there's so much life of God found among them. And we need them to actually free us of our selfishness. When um, we lived in Kenya, we um, started hearing about, there's this country not far from where we live, uh, lived in Kenya, and it's right in the middle of, Ke- uh, of Africa. It's called the Democratic Republic of the Congo, the DRC. And it's a beautiful country. It's a large country, right in the middle of the African continent. And um, lots of people there, lots of jungle there, and um, but a very poor and undeveloped country, even though it's a very rich country in resources. So there's a lot of, actually, especially in the the eastern side of the country, there's a lot of uh, mines where they have diamonds and cobalt and other precious metals. Like stuff, there's stuff in your phones that came from the Congo. And there's lots of resources and minerals in the ground there. And um, so the country is very rich in natural resource. But at the same time, it's one of the poorest countries in the whole world because of corruption and war and just bad leadership. And um, so... In, um, while we were there in Kenya, we started learning and hearing more and more about the Congo. And there was this war going on. And still till today, there's lots of problems there in that nation. And uh, in, in the eastern part of the Congo, there's this rebel war going on. There's these various rebel groups. It's in this vast jungle area where these mines are. And, of course, in these mines, they actually fuel a lot of the conflict. And so... These rebel groups, they fight for regions. They try to gain control over mines and different places and oppress people or just murder them and, um, and try to get resources to buy more weapons and become more powerful and on and on it goes. And it's a huge problem in that region of the country. And um, they, there's lots of child soldiers. And it's so sad because they take kids and many times when they abduct these children, They will drug them up and they will force these children to shoot or kill their own parents. And just to cut their way back, cut off their way back home. And uh, so these kids, they traumatize these children. They abuse them and then they drug them up and they turn them into soldiers. And they really become like these mindless killing machines. 
So lots of child soldiers. And then another thing that is so sad in that region is all the sexual violence. Many people would call it the rape capital of the world. In that region, eastern Congo, um, it's documented that over one-third of all women have been raped. And that's what's documented. It's much more. But at least one-third is documented. And many of these women have been raped over and over again with husbands and children forced to watch. I mean, the sexual violence is so horrific. I could tell you guys stories, but I don't want it. it. You'll get sick to your stomach. It's honestly disgusting what is done to women. Women are raped in ways that kill them. And so we, we're starting to hear these stories of child soldiers and all the, the, the sexual violence and everything. And it, it was just so moving. And so we just started praying for this nation. And we're asking the Lord, Lord, would you use us? Give us an open door. But we didn't know anybody in, in eastern Congo. And um, after a season of praying, somehow we got connected. Somebody knew somebody who knew somebody. And um, I got an email address. And I sent this email to this leader there in eastern Congo, this church leader, a pastor. And uh, his name was Mboto. He's a dear friend now. And uh, I just emailed, introduced myself. We're like, hey. And um, I said, I want to come with the team. And we'd love to visit your country and serve however we can. I was like, we'll clean your toilets. We don't care. We just want to love, come and love on you. And um, anyway, long story short, he's like, yeah, come on out. And he wanted to organize a leaders, like a pastor's conference and have us speak. And we're like, sure. So put together a little team. And um, we travel out there into the Congo. And um, there's this one city called Goma in that region. And it's kind of like the capital of that region, like that area. It's the, the one main city in that region, about a million people. And that's where we were going to do the conference. And the city was relatively safe. It's not a safe city. It's a very criminal city. But there's no active war in the city. But north of that city was the war zone, and, or they called the red zone, the, 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 the rebel-held territories where all these different rebel groups, like six or seven, that were moving around and where this war was going on. And uh, so we were going to travel to the city and do the conference. And so me and a few people, we go out there. I think it was like six or seven of us. And um, we're there, and we do the conference. And um, so we, we get into the Congo, and as soon as, li actually, literally, like, when I crossed the border into the Congo, I, because we're traveling over land from Rwanda, I, this prayer welled up in my heart, and I just kept praying over and over, Lord, if you would take me to the most broken, I will love them. And I just kept asking, Lord, take us to the most broken so that I could show them your love. And I just kept praying over and over, and then we do the conference, and, and it was all right. I, it wasn't actually that amazing but it was it was okay it was a good conference but then about towards the end of the conference Mboto our contact our friend who had put the whole thing together he um one, one time he comes up to me he's like hey Daniel can I just talk to you for a second I said, sure so he takes me aside to the room and he said uh, you've got to hear this he said uh, I know a man he is a pastor in a little village north in the war zone and he just came back he just came to the conference and he fled for his life and he said this is what happened there was a rebel group called the Intrahamwe. They're the most feared rebel group in the region. It's ruthless. And he said they attacked his village. It was a village of about 130 houses. And we're like houses, you got to think like mud huts with thatched roofs. Real basic. And he said th these rebels, they came and attacked the village. And he said and they killed the men. They raped the women. And then they burned all the houses to the ground, many of them with children alive in them. And he said the, but the pastor was able to escape. And he fled through the war zone for several days, and he came to the city, and he's here at the conference. He just told me that story. And when Mboto told me that story, 
I was in shock. I could not believe that this was like even real. It was so hard to wrap my head around that, that something as horrific as that had just happened a few days ago, just north of where we were. And I, I was like, Mot like I'm trying to grasp it. I, was like, I said, this is real? This happens? He said, yeah. And, 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 I said, and, and there are churches in that region? He said, yeah. I said, how, do I, how are they doing? How do they survive the war? He said, many don't. It's horrible. They're suffering so much. And I was just so moved by this going on. And I said, both of us, I said, is there any way after the conference with our team that we can go into that region and maybe visit some of the churches and just minister to them? And Bote had to laugh a little bit. He's like, no, there's no way. He's like, it's a war zone. He's like, you will all die. He's like, it's too dangerous. You can't. You'll stick out. Like, what is it, white people? He's like, there's no way. I was like, oh, yeah, I understand. And that night I went to bed, and I, I just kept hearing over and over the story of, that Mbota shared with me. And I was so moved in my heart, and there's such a longing in my heart to go there. And I just, again, I just kept praying, God, please take me to the most broken so that I can love them. And then the next morning, I went to Mbota. I said, Mbota, I understand that our team can go. It's too dangerous. And I said, is there any way that I can go alone? And I even had an idea. I said, like, can you, like, trans, I thought it was a great idea. I said, can you transport me in, like, a coffin? Because I thought nobody's going to check in a coffin. Like, maybe that's my way to sneak into the war zone. And he didn't think it was a good idea. And, uh, and, and, but I said, is there any way that I can go alone? And he said, Daniel, it's, it's too dangerous. You shouldn't go. And, um, and, and but I, I just couldn't let it go. And then Mboto was quiet for a little bit. He looks at me and he said, you really want to go, don't you? And I said, I, it's so in my heart, I would love to go, if there's any way. And then Boto's quiet again for a little bit, and he said, okay, if you want to go, I'll go with you. I'll take you. He said, we can go. It'll be dangerous, but we can go. And I said, let me just call my wife. <laughs> and so I called Merlise, and I tell her. I said, hey, I just heard this story from the war zone, and, and I told her about this prayer in my heart. I said, Mboto is willing to take me. We can't take the team, but we can send the team home after a conference, and then Mboto and I can go. And he said, I, said, I told her, I said, Mboto said it'll be dangerous. I don't know what that means. Like, how dangerous is dangerous? I said, I don't know. But what do you think? And we pray a little. And then Merlise said, Now this is what we're called to do. we got to do this stuff. You should go. And um, so we pray, and she's like, you should totally do this. And, um, and then she said, actually, what I just said. Like, she said, Jesus stepped into the darkness. I said, let there be light. Like, she should do the same thing. And um, so then I tell them both, like, green light, like, let's do this. And so we finished the conference. I send the team home, and uh, I stay behind. And the next morning, and Boats and I, we were going to travel into this region. And um, so I'm at Mboto's house. He's got six children. And um, early morning, we're getting ready to go. And he's saying bye to his wife and children. And he goes, like, by all the, all, well, like, one by one, by all his kids. And he starts with his youngest child, and he gets on the ground, holds his child, and says bye, and then says some nice things and blesses his child, and is like super emotional. I'm like, wow. Then he goes to his next kid, yeah, very emotional, and takes time. And then the next one, it takes so long, and I'm like, gosh, we're only going to be gone for a few days. Like, this is so intense. And then his wife, and him and his wife, and they're holding each other and really like saying goodbye, and I'm like, gosh, so intense. And um, then finally he's done, and we go to the airport, and we get onto this little propeller plane, him and I, and we fly north for like an hour and get off. And then we get motorbikes, 
And then we'd drive on motorbikes for like four and a half hours through the jungle. And it was beautiful, actually. I came off walking like a cowboy, but it was beautiful just through the jungle. There's waterfalls, mountains. There's volcanoes there, gorillas. Well, I didn't see gorillas, but they're there. And it was just amazing. And so we're just racing through the jungle. And um, at the, like, later in the afternoon, we get to this little village, Lubero, where we were going to spend the night. And this village was on the edge of the war zone. Like from there was the war zone. And um, him and I, we had looked at a map, and um, he had asked me, well, like, so where do we go? I said, I want to go to the worst place. Like who is suffering the most? And he said, well, then I would think it would be here. And he points to this one village called Kanya Bayonga. It's right in the middle of the war zone. He said, it's a bigger village, maybe 1,200 people. He said, I know there's a church. I've met the pastor once. There was no way of us to reach them. There's no network there, like no cell phones. He said, well, I don't know if the guy's there, if the church is still there. We don't know what state it is in. We don't know if the village is destroyed or anything. But he said, I know it's in the middle of the war zone. They would have suffered the most. And so that was our plan, to go there. And um, so... We traveled one day, now we made it to the edge of the war zone, and then our plan was to spend the night there, and then the next day, with our motorbikes, we were just going to drive all day through the, now the actual war zone to get to the village. And uh, that day, as we're, we're traveling that first day on the plane and motorbikes here and there, we're just kind of talking, and I'm trying to get a feel for what it's like. And I ask, like, how dangerous is dangerous? <laughs> like, like, I want to know if I'm going to die or not. And uh, he's like, well, it's bad. He said, I, the last time that I went was two years ago. And he said, and, and we took a bus. There was a big bus that was still driving. And um, he said, I also wanted to go towards this region. And uh, he said, I was sitting in the bus and we're driving. He was kind of far in the back. And he said, at one point we were held up. There was a, a roadblock by rebel soldiers. And so they stopped us on the road. And he said, the rebel soldiers, several of the guys, they came into the bus and they stole from us. They took all our valuables. And um, then they, they left the bus again. And then the last rebel that left the bus just pointed to two guys like you and you come out of the bus with us. And these two men had to follow the rebels out of the bus. And in both, he said, I was sitting here on the side by the window in the back of the bus. And he said, and these two, two, uh, two men that were led out of the bus were right there. And he said, and then the rebel soldiers, they took their machetes, like their big knives. They started hacking in on these guys and they killed these two men right there next to the bus. And he said, and there was a woman with a baby sitting in front of me. She started screaming, screaming, because one of these men was her brother, who she is witnessing being hacked to pieces. She's screaming, screaming. And the rebels, they notice her screaming. And one of the rebels comes back into the bus. And this is so horrible, but it's what happened. And the rebel goes right up to the woman, grabs her baby by the feet, and starts hitting the baby against the bus. And the woman jumps on the rebel to try to save her child. And the rebel takes his big knife, and he kills the woman and the baby right there inside of the bus in front of Mboto. And Mboto, he looks at me, he says, now, it was traumatizing to see it. And he said, when that happened, I decided to never go back to this region until the war was over. He said, even the time before that I went, we also went with a bus. And he said, we were traveling, we were stopped by rebels, and there was five rebel soldiers. And they came into the bus, and they didn't take our valuables, they just wanted to hitch a ride. He said, they told all of us to squeeze into the front half of the bus. And he said, and then they sat on the back, the big, the back row, the five of them, and they told us to drive. And he said, and we drove for hours, and he said, all of us were, were like frozen, like with people on our, on our laps, right? Everybody squeezed in front of, like in total silence, so scared because we didn't know what was going to happen. And he said, until a few hours later, we were stopped again 
by an opposing rebel group. And so he said, we stop, and they come in, and they see their enemies in the back. And he said, a fight breaks out in the back. And these opposing rebels, they kill the hitchhiking rebels, and then they tell us to keep driving. And he said, the blood was just flowing down the aisle of the bus. And he said, so after those two instances, I decided I'm never going to go back here until the war is over. This is too much, too dangerous. He said, until you insisted you wanted to go, he said, I can't let you go alone. And he said, so here we are. And so he said, it's very dangerous. He said, if we... He said, we don't know where the rebels are. He said, but you can count on this. If we encounter them, you and I will die a bloody death. I was like, okay. So now I'm feeling like, gosh, this is really serious, right? And, um, and I'm praying. I'm a God, make a way, like take us. And again, I am just keep praying over and over. God, take us to the most broken so that we can show them you love them. And um, at the end of the day, we're there in Lubiro in this little village. And the next day we were going to, do like the real dangerous stuff we're going to drive on the motorbike through the war zone and I was kind of feeling restless and I didn't really have peace about it and I was like gosh can you do something like this can you just take a motorbike and drive through a war zone hoping you don't encounter rebels and it's not like I had like this word of the Lord to go to that village it was just in my heart I mean I've got the great commission I feel like I've got permission to go anywhere in the world honestly and I just kind of do whatever's in my heart and I trust the Lord stops me if I go the wrong way that's how I approach my life and so I, I just went for it. And so, but now I'm praying, like, gosh, can you take a risk like this? And I'm feeling a little restless. So I tell them both, I say, hey, why don't we talk to, there was a, a United Nations Army base there in that village. I said, let's talk to them and get some advice, see if, see if they have some information for us. So we go there. We, t- we meet with the head Army guy. And we tell him, like, hey, we're missionaries down in Boto. We're, g- we're planning to travel to Kanyabayonga tomorrow. He's like, you're going to Kanyabayonga? He's like, nobody goes there. He's like, it's too dangerous. I said, yeah, yeah. I said, we're missionaries. And I said, do you have any information on where the rebels are? And he's like, nobody knows where the rebels are. They move around all the time. And then uh, he said, but you're lucky. He said, we actually have a convoy scheduled of armed vehicles and military men to leave tomorrow morning, 9 a.m., through the war zone. And we're actually scheduled to drive through the village of Kanyabayonga. If you want, you can drive with us under our protection. We'll drop you off in the village. And immediately this peace of the Lord comes over me. I'm like, God, thank you. He makes a way, right? It's the promise of the Great Commission. You go, God goes with you. It's the best thing about missions. It's the experience of his presence. He goes with you. And so we sleep that night. Next day, we get onto these uh, armed vehicles, and we travel the whole day through the war zone. Never encountered any rebels. And the rebels, they never attack the U.N. because the U.N. is not allowed to attack them unless they get attacked. And uh, so we travel all day, and... Uh, kind of halfway the day, this was so crazy, uh, halfway the day, the guy that's sitting next to me, he leads the convoy. He said, uh, uh, sir, do you need like a little restroom break? And I was like, actually, I do. And so then uh, they stop, and all the cars stop, and he's like, wait here. He jumps out of the car. I kid you not. He yells some commands to the soldiers, and all these soldiers jump out of their cars with their weapons, and they form a circle, all facing outward, holding their guns. And then he says, there you go. You can do your business right there in the circle. And I had to pee in the circle with all the soldiers around it. It's the most awkward I've ever peed in my life, but also the safest probably that I've ever peed in my life. <laughs> that was amazing. Anyways, then we went again. And then uh, towards the end of the day, it's like 4 or 5 p.m. somewhere, like later in the afternoon, we get to Kanyabayunga. And the village is there. And it's so crazy. We drive to the village, and they drop us off right at the church, and we get out, and they just go. All right, bye-bye. They're like, you sure? Yeah, yeah. So we, and we go to, the, we walk up to the church, and there was a house attached to the church where we would think the pastor would live. And we, uh, Boto knocks on the door. 
And the pastor opens the door and immediately falls in both those arms. And they laugh and they thank God and they begin to pray and hold each other. And such a beautiful moment. He was so happy to see us. And he welcomes us into his house. He's like, come in, come in. And we sit down. And I introduced introduce, introduce myself. Boto and him I had met before. And uh, I asked the pastor, so how, how are you doing? Are you okay? And then he starts telling me story after story after story. And he said, we're not doing okay. He said, last week, a village just six kilometers from here. That's less than four miles. Just six kilometers from here. He said, it's a village of about 130 homes. He said, they were attacked by the interhumway. He said, and they killed all the men. They raped the women. They burned the whole place to the ground. That's the village that I'd heard about. He said, but then, and this is what was the shock of my life. But he said, then after that, the interhumway, they came to our village. And he said this, he said, we are currently surrounded by the rebels. He said, our village is too big for them to take. But for the last few days, every night, they come in and they attack our village. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is so crazy. And, um, and then he starts telling story after story of the last few years of the war. And it was horrific stuff. I had never heard such sad and such gruesome things. And it was so overwhelming that after a while, I did what I don't think I've ever asked anybody. I asked him to stop talking, like, you know, nice, as nice as I could. But I said I was just so overwhelmed. And he's like, no, no, I understand, I understand, you're tired. It's okay, it's okay. He's like, let me show you your room, and you can rest. And so the church, on the side of the church, they had five, like, little rest, or, like, bedrooms next to it. And one room was from the caretaker of the church. And he said, you guys can spend the night here. And um, then Boto and the caretaker, they talk a little bit. And then um, Boto turns to me and said, Daniel, why don't you take the middle of the five rooms, and I'll take the room to your left. The caretaker will take the room to your right. And he said this, that way, in case the rebels come and attack us here tonight, at least you'll be the last one they find. I was like, okay, I, thanks. I, I was like, what in the world? This is so crazy. And so I go into the room, and it's like this it's barely room. It's like this tiny little room with one wooden bed and a wooden chair. And I go in there and I think, okay, there's nowhere to hide here. Like, the first place to look is under the bed. I was like, I need a place to hide. As I was, I was thinking very victoriously. And so I open the door again. I look outside and there's some banana trees with some bushes. And in my mind, I think, okay, if I hear anything tonight, I'm going to be in those bushes. And so I get back in the room. I close the door and I want to get ready to go to bed. And all of a sudden, this fear comes over me. And I get so scared. And I'm thinking, this might be it. You know, there's a real difference between counting the cost and paying the price. And I thought, this could be it for me. And, and I've been to the meetings where I'm like, Lord, take my life. Like, I'll go, right? But then when you're there and it's so real, it just feels a little different. And, and I'm not saying those meetings don't matter. They do. But then when you're there and you're right there, it's different. It's a little different. It just feels so real. And I, and I obviously, Mboto and I, we were stuck in this village. There was no way to get out, no way to call for help. And I thought this could be it. I could literally die here tonight or this week. This, is, this could be my last trip. I may never see Marlies or my kids or anything. This could be it. And this fear comes over me, and it just gets worse and worse, the fear. And I'm thinking, okay, Donald, come on, don't be afraid. Keep it together. It's okay. You can die. God is good. Whatever. I'm trying to pet myself. Like, it's okay. You're going to go to heaven. Whatever. And, and, but I can't shake the fear. And it just gets worse. And I'm feeling it in my stomach. And, like, I'm almost throwing up. That's how scared I am. And I'm like, oh, man. And I thought I was, I'm like, 
I always thought I was like somewhat of a bold missionary. Like our team in Kenya, almost all, like I think all of us, we've been shot at at times. We've been crazy places. Like we've had many experiences. So I thought I had a bit of courage, but now I cannot shake the fear. And I pull it together, Daniel, but I, it, I can't. It's all over me, this fear. And it's just getting worse and worse. And I'm like, God, I need help. I need to pray. And as I turn to the Bible, Psalm 23, and it says that God can prepare a table for us in the presence of our enemies. So God, I'm surrounded by enemies. I need a little party here with you tonight. I need to meet with you. And I'm praying through that verse over and over and over again. And I'm wrestling and I'm praying for four hours until finally I break through. And in a moment, the fear lefts. And the peace of God comes into the room. And I feel a total peace. I feel like I'm in the safest place of my life. And I feel great. And I go to bed and I sleep wonderfully. And then the next morning, real early, and I'm going to need my phone here in a little bit to, for the sound clip. And uh, next morning at 6 a.m., we had prayer meeting in the church. And so I'm, I'm awake. I slept great. I didn't hear anything. And I'm there in the church and we're praying. And um, they asked me to lead the prayer meeting. It's like, what do you tell these people? And so we just went through some of the Bible verses that helped me the night before just break through that fear. And um, then the Holy Spirit comes. We're crying. We're praying. And God meets us. It's just a beautiful, it's amazing, beautiful time. And then afterwards, we're talking. And now you hear the stories. Again, it's so gross, but it's what happened. Some rebels had attacked. I heard nothing. And a guy was killed on our street, which is like a sand path. And then what happened is that rebels, they had cut off his privates and cut off pieces of meat from his legs to take with them to eat because they're cannibals. And so like an hour, they're telling all the stories of what happened that night, and it's just so intense. And um, then one guy, he comes up to me, and he said, Brother Daniel, I want to thank you. He said, since the war began six years ago or five years ago, he said, nobody has visited us. Not one missionary, nobody from our family, no overseers of our church denomination. We've been all alone. But you coming here tells us that God has not forgotten us. He still loves us. He still loves us. And I was so happy because that was my prayer the whole week. God, take me to the most broken so that I can show you still love. I was so happy. I was like, this is it. Like God did it. I was generally so joyful. And so I turned to the next guy. I'm just like, like giddy always. Like, hey, how are you doing this morning? And he looks at me with this broken look in his eyes. He's like, how am I doing? I was like, yeah, how are you doing? And he's like, I can't sleep anymore at night. I was like, I've seen too much. I said, I'm sorry. And we prayed. And then the pastor comes like, Dan, I want you to meet somebody. And there's this widow. And she lived in a, in, in a house right next to the church. And Moats and I, we go in. And she's there holding a baby. And um, she said, my husband died a few months ago while I was pregnant of this child, my ninth child. And she calls her kids, and all these kids come, and it's like, like eight kids, and then the ninth, the baby she's holding. And she had two pictures of her husband. She showed us. It's all she had. And, um, and she would share, said, it's, it's so challenging to take care of my children. Said, I've got nothing. And she said, I miss my husband. And we would talk to her. We tried to encourage her. And at times she would just stare at the photos and just weep. And she'd say, I miss him so. I miss him so. It was heartbreaking. And both and I, we just emptied our pockets. We gave whatever we had. It wasn't much. But, and we just prayed with her. And um, then we're back at the church. And we, just, we had to stay inside all day because it was just too dangerous to go anywhere. And um, we're there. And <clears throat> then uh, in the afternoon, the pastor, he said, uh, Daniel, Daniel, he said, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. And we're like, what, what, do you, what do you mean? 
He's like, we, I, you are my guests, but I don't have any food, and I can't make you any food. I'm so sorry. I feel so bad. He said, since the rebels came and surrounded our village, he said, with the village, we've run out of food. The village was in a, in a valley, and he said, we grow our food on the slopes of the mountain, but when the men go to gather food, they get killed, and if the women go, they get raped, and the village says, we've run out of food. He said, I have nothing to give you, and he kept apologizing. We said, it's okay. You don't have to give us anything. And it was incredible. This man, he had nothing, but he was so eager to give. And then he leaves the house. And he comes back a few hours later, his face beaming. And he's got this plastic bag. And he said, I've got something for you. And he gives us this bag. And we're like, what? And we open it, and it's this huge pineapple in it. <laughs> and it would have been rude to not accept it. We had to take it. And Mboto, he's cutting it up. And, and we were sitting there in total silence eating. It was hard to eat. And we said, and we'll never know what it cost him or what he risked. I don't know how he got that pineapple. And then we spent another night there. And, <clears throat> uh, and next morning, again, prayer meeting at 6 a.m. And now it was in one of the mud huts of the church members. And um, it was right there by the church. And we're all squeezed in there. We're like, I don't know, like maybe 20 to 25 people in this little mud hut. And the pastor is like, Brother Daniel, what you share? And at this point, I didn't know what to say. I was genuinely like at a loss for words. And I said, I don't know what to say, actually. I said, other than that, I'm just so grateful. It's such an honor to even be with you. This is so special to me. And um, he's like, oh, that's okay. And then one woman, not the one next to me, but one over, she raised her hand. She said, Pastor, I've got something to say. The pastor's like, all right, go ahead. And then she said this. Can I have the, my phone? And then she said, um, I've, I've got a testimony. And she said, I want to testify of the goodness of God. And she reads a passage from the Psalms. I can't remember which one, but it says something about the goodness of God. Awesome, thanks. About the goodness of God. And, um, and, and then she said, if we look with natural eyes, we can all see many hardships, many difficulties. But she said, if we can look with spiritual eyes, we can all see that God is so good to us. And she gives this incredible testimony to God. God. And I was so convicted, honestly. I was like, unbelievable. These people live in some of the worst circumstances you can imagine. Incredible suffering. And yet they are so confident of the goodness of God. So full of faith that no matter how dark this world is and evil rages, God is still God and He's still good. And I was so convicted. Because I'm like, I go to a meeting and if I don't feel God, I'm like, God, you're still there, right? Like, you still love me, right? And these guys, again, such suffering, but so confident in the goodness of God. And it was just so powerful. And then after she shared, they just started singing a, a, an old hymn. And it was so beautiful. We're sitting there in that mud hut, and I pulled out my phone. I recorded, and I want you guys to hear it right now. And so this is in a mud hut, 6 in the morning, in the war zone in the Congo. People gathered. None of them knows if they will live another day. And they start to worship God. And they sing this song. And it's in Swahili. But uh, it's, unless you speak that, you will understand it. But they're singing of the friendship with Jesus. And the goodness of Jesus. And they keep singing, there is not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. And they keep singing over and over this friendship of Jesus. And this is what it sounded like right there.
that was light shining in the darkness. And the darkness could not overcome it. Worship was offered to the Lord Jesus. These are our brothers and sisters. And there are people all over the world in great need. And the Lord wants to use many of you guys to bring hope to the lost, the last, and the least all over the world. And in this season in your life, the Lord's going to touch many of your hearts, even for some of you today, and he already is. Because many of you guys are going to be called to things like this. And it's going to be beautiful. You'll bring hope to the hopeless. And you'll be a light in a dark place. And you're like, who am I? I don't think I can do this. And God simply says to you, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to go with you. Don't put your confidence in your abilities. Put it in my presence. And the promise, again, it's personal. He says, I'm going to be with you. He is your father. He loves you. And he is with you. We don't have time to talk about it, but the, we got out of that whole situation, obviously, quite supernaturally, but it's a story for another time. But I wanted to share you guys with you guys a story because this is the stuff that moves the heart of God so much. And it's so near and dear to him to make a change, to make a difference in places like this. And it's so sad that there are so many young people like you guys who are just kind of going through the motions. You know, right? they, they, they grow up, they go to school, get an education so they can get a job and make money and find a spouse and get married and make more money to have children who can then go to school and get a job and make money and get a spouse so they can have children who can then go to school and get a job, right? And, and it just goes on and on and on. And, and guys, you are not called to make a living. You're called to make a difference. And there is another way to live. And everything in this culture around us tells us, take care of yourself, get comfortable, be safe, get a good education so you can make money and get insurance, right? And get more money so that you can move to the good side of town and stay away from the people that are in trouble. Get network with the important people. Get more stuff, get more comfortable, get more insurance. And God is saying something different. He's saying there's another way to live that's not just about you getting more and more comfortable and getting stuff and then just dying and not and just living a meaningless life. There is a bigger story that he invites you to be a part of. There's something to give yourself to. There is a cause. There is a mission. There is a great adventure. And this great commission is really the great invitation of God to an adventure of a lifetime with him. And you are all invited. All right, let's stand. We're going to pray. And guys, I, this is the kind of stuff we typically talk about a little bit later in our DTS. Because I get it. It's a little intense. All right? But I think the Lord thinks you can take it. I think he wants to start the conversation soon. And I think for some of you, even this morning, the Lord wants to speak some real specific stuff. And so we're just going to take some time just to pray and, and let the Lord do whatever he wants to do. Is that okay? So just like this, let's just open our hearts. And we're just going to welcome the Holy Spirit. And, and let's just see what happens. Let's just see what the Lord wants to do. And I'm going to ask him for his heart for the nations, 
for the lost and the last and the least. And so Holy Spirit, God, we come before you and I ask Holy Spirit right now, God, I ask for a release of your presence right now. Come Holy Spirit. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to know more about DTS and Fighting for Against, you can check out our website at ywamkona.com or reach out to us on our social media platforms. For more stories from the field, stay right here on the Fighting for Against podcast.